You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good morning. Yes, yes. How are we doing? Okay, love it. So good. Um, guys, it's good to see you. Good to be here. I'm really excited for today. Today is a, is a, a powerful part of scripture. Um, but uh, if for any reason you've missed the last couple of weeks, I just want to uh, very briefly over, overview, recap, um, go read uh, Matthew, all of Matthew. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, but we're already to chapter 9, Matthew 9. Uh, we started back in September. Isn't that crazy? Uh, we're to chapter 9, and um, the last few weeks have just been some insane stories, some crazy stuff. Jesus is coming off of Sermon on the Mount, giving just his most compiled teachings, probably over a course of a few days. This is kind of like his manifesto. This is what I'm about. This is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be about. And then immediately coming off of the, the Mount, everyone's pumped. Everyone's like, yeah, we're with you or whatever. And then he runs into a leper. And just immediately gets confronted with like, it, it, what I just talked about is not going to be comfortable. What I just talked about is going to be countercultural. It's going to be something that is not ex- what was expected or different. And you actually have to change your mind and ask God to see it for what it is. It, Jesus always says, for those who have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. And that doesn't just happen all the time. We don't just expect to add God to our already thriving lives. We need to actually submit to that. So it's been incredible. And then, and then the disciples, I forget the timeline, but disciples were on a boat. They were going across and this huge storm came over them and Jesus calmed the storm, which is just wild. And then they get over. And then if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the demon-possessed man. And then all of a sudden there were demon-possessed pigs. And if that intrigues you, go read that chapter nine. It was wild. Um, and, uh, and then last week, Gabe walked us through Jesus' teaching uh, with people and someone, uh, a f- bunch of friends, bring a paralyzed, a paralyzed man to Jesus. And Jesus, not only does he heal the paralytic, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but he actually, before he does that, he says, your sins are forgiven, which is way more, and, and Jesus is showing the priorities of it. Jesus is going through kind of what he actually has come for, and then by his grace, he heals, but we'll get into that. So, and then if you follow in your scriptures, the actual, the next passage after that is um, the calling of Matthew, Jesus coming by Matthew, the tax collector, and saying, follow me. And if you remember back in September, we actually started out our entire Matthew series with this, so we're not going to exegete that particularly, but going to the next passage after that. And this passage that Whitney just read, this is actually going to have a lot of connections with what's come before it. Um, our Bibles, the, the one of the issues, um, it's still great and it's still beautiful, but one of the problems is um, in our English Bibles, we have the chapter breaks and we have the paragraph breaks and the headings and all that kind of stuff. So it makes, what it does is it kind of trains our brains. It, it's helpful, right? But it trains our brains to think of these as like bite-sized little chunks, not always connected. But originally, these were just whole manuscripts. Like these would have just been read. You wouldn't have been like Matthew chapter 9, verse 3, whatever. You just would have read Matthew, and that would have been it. So it's helpful. I think it's very helpful for our brains, but we also have to realize all these stories are connected. We're learning a story about Jesus as he is revealing who God is to us and to the people. 
So Jesus here in chapter 9, what he's been about is he's been showing everyone around him, and especially the religious leaders, the people that they say they've been put in charge by God to show the people who God is and how, how they are to be. Jesus has been going around and kind of showing them, yeah, I see your outside religion. I see you doing the things that you're supposed to do. I see you making these rules and following these rules and puffing out your chest. But actually, I came to tell you, God cares about the heart. God cares about the inside. It actually matters what's going on inside. If you have this kind of professional or, or um, a public show of following God and then this private life of just not caring at all, that's actually going to matter. It's not just about what is shown on the outside. He's come to show that I've, I've brought something different than just religion. And his healings, the things he's been doing, this is not like the pinnacle of his thing. Saying, I, I'm not, I didn't come to bring religion. He's not saying, I also, I just came to bring just healings. His healing shows his power on earth, right? So that then there could be no doubt that then he has power in the heavens, He's showing, bringing heaven to earth. His healing, his healing ministry here on earth, this isn't just like the only thing Jesus came to do. He's showing, I actually am Lord of these things. I am the one who all things, the scriptures say, all things were created in and through me. And so I can heal these things. I can bring newness to these things. But these demonstrations are to show that this is on earth as it is in heaven. So then when I talk about the kingdom of heaven, you can trust me that I can. And I have the power to do that. Sometimes Jesus' miracles here leading up to this story, they kind of get boiled down to him doing kind of like seeker-friendly youth group night where he just comes and he does a little tease of a healing here. And he's like, and then he fades back into the fog machine, you know. And it's just kind of like, ooh, what's this kingdom of heaven, you know. But he's revealing that heaven has come. It's come through him. He is bringing that here. And once again, through him, God is walking among his people. And this is incredible. So we need the gravity. When we're reading these stories, we're not just reading an old story of, of Jesus and then we learn about God. It's like, this is, mag this is incredible. Like, we need to understand the magnitude of it. So let me just go through uh, just a couple of connections over chapter 9 leading up to our passage today. Uh, we looked at last week, uh, Gabe walked us through um, the healing of the paralytic, and there's just a specific phrases that you can start to see Matthew kind of brilliantly putting here. So if you go back to chapter 9, verse 7, once Jesus uh, forgives the sins of the paralytic, and then to prove a point, he also heals the paralytic. He says, take up your mat and go home. And the paralytic, he rose and went home. And then if you read the Matthew story, Matt, Jesus is walking by this tax collector booth. Tax collectors, we, walk, we walked through this in the first week, are just despised and not people you want to associate with. And he says, you follow me. And Matthew gets up and he rose and followed him. And remember that Matthew is the author of this book. So Matthew intentionally has placed himself in this section. He could have put his call at any point in time. We started our series with the call of Matthew. He could have started his gospel with the call of Matthew, but he puts himself here. Because this right here, that rose language, that's resurrection language. That is new life language. They looked, their stories looked very different, but they were actually more similar than they realized. Being unable to do anything is not just for paralyzed people. Matthew was walking around just as paralyzed because of his unbelief. The paralytic had nothing of value, and God lifted him up. Matthew had everything of value. 
money, status, powerful position, a future with a potential of growth. But something about this man of Jesus, something was compelling about the Son of God to do something so much greater than himself. And God lifted Matthew up just the same. When Jesus, when he heals the paralytic, the Pharisees scoffed at Jesus. Not when he healed the the paralytic's body, but when he said, your sins are forgiven. Because that's something only God could offer, so this was a blasphemy. Well, the Pharisees also had issues with Jesus associating with Matthew being a tax collector. If you remember the story, as soon as Matthew leaves his booth, he takes Jesus to a great feast. It says they were together with lots, a large group of tax collectors and sinners eating together. And the Pharisees scoffed at this, this is chapter 9, 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this again, going back to our very first sermon in this series, that quote, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's going back to Hosea, who God used as a prophet in the day to tell the religious leaders at the time, guys, you're doing all this stuff, but your heart is wicked. Your heart is not actually trying to follow God. You're just trying to do all the right things. Their private life does not match up with your public show for God. So Jesus is quoting this to again show the heart of God and that God has always desired true, repentant, surrendering faith rather than empty sacrifice. Because sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice means nothing. It means nothing. Which is what, especially later on, Jesus will accuse the Pharisees of doing with all their added rules and regulations. But the point of all the sacrifices, all that Old Testament stuff that we'll get into in a second, was leading to and supposed to be growing a heart of surrender and steadfast love. And that is what God's people were made to do, to become more loving. Jesus is teaching the Pharisees here to look in a mirror before they go around judging Because even their pious cleanliness is just empty action if their hearts are not in it. It's worthless in God's eyes if it's not true worship. So we get to the next phase of this scene. This has all been kind of going on, and now we're in our passage today, verse 14. And this time, it's not the Pharisees who have an issue. It's actually other God-fearing disciples, the disciples of John the Baptist. So verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we... And the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. So don't forget, back in Matthew 4, we were told very briefly that Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. And actually, later in Matthew, we'll get to the why and what happens with him. But even though he has, he's in prison, he still has followers who are still carrying on his message, preaching repentance and baptism. And we don't know if John actually sent these disciples to Jesus or they just kind of showed up or not. But these God-fearing Jews are wondering why Jesus' followers do things differently. If John really has so much respect for his cousin, Jesus here, and has even claimed this, if you go back to his baptism, to be the Lamb of God, then why do they not do what they should? Real quick, will you guys journey with me on fasting a little bit? Yeah, excited about that? Or is people too hungry? It's like, where's, let's eat breakfast and then we'll talk about fasting, yeah. 
So fasting, one of those spiritual practices that became very legalistic, often would just become this thing that you do, right? And we see that even today. But we know the Pharisees, they would even, they would fast sometimes twice a week and they make a great show of it. They make themselves look terrible and dirty. And so like, oh, this is so hard. I'm suffering for the Lord. And not that some of them truly did it to worship. Some of them might've been like, wow, man, like twice a week fasting. Just think about that. Like that's, that's, Incredible. Abstain from food to honor what God has gifted them. But many of the Pharisees were caught up in religious piety over heart change. As this was modeled by them and then influenced Jewish culture, some of the other disciples of following God were following suit, especially when John the Baptist, he was such a simpleton. If you, if you read about him, eating locusts and honey, very simply dressed, right? Not drinking wine, observing the Jewish customs. His followers took this very seriously of how they were supposed to live. They observed the fasting rituals, which had various occasions and reasons, but were mostly to commemorate all the sad parts of their history, all the sad parts of Israel's history, fasting for losses, defeats, periods of exile, fasting in general for hopeful spiritual blessing. And fasting is not bad at all. Right? In fact, it's an amazing way to honor God. And throughout the history of his people, this has been going on. And sometimes God even has, has commanded it, that there shall be a fast on these certain days. Today, it's much of a wise spiritual practice to just simply abstain from food as a reminder of God's provision and to stand in solidarity with those who suffer in the world and have no access to food in the name of God. Right now, we're in a Lent season. Right, we're in the Lent season, which is a reminder that Jesus went 40 days in the desert without food. And this wasn't out of weakness then, that then he was tempted by the devil, but it to show that it was actually, he was at a height of power. Because in his fasting, he dedicated himself to God. He had full dependence on the Father to provide. But in Matthew 9, Jesus is about to show everyone that the ministry that John was doing is good, but it was stuck. It was stuck in preparing the way for the Messiah. And John's followers were caught up in the preparation when the Messiah would come. They were ready for it. They're preparing. They're saying, why don't we need to do these things to come? But here's what Jesus says. I have come. Jesus has come. His, his disciples are actually living in the reality of his presence. Verse 15, can, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus here is juxtapo, juxtaposing. Nope. <laughs> Juxt, what you said. Yes, Jesus is making a difference between... Um, between a, like a funeral and a celebration. Why would we mourn here? Why would we be sad here? This is a wedding feast. Right? Mourning was done in memoriam of someone or something, but Jesus says this is not a waiting or mourning period. This is a wedding feast. The bridegroom has come and is with his bride. Why would we not be celebrating? The great and wise Solomon, King Solomon once wrote in Ecclesiastes 3, 3.1, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. And then verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. What is Jesus saying? What time is this? To dance, 
to celebrate, right? Not to, war, not to mourn, not to weep, right? These people were all, just like that, Jack, these people were all caught up in the rituals that kept them in the past in remembrance of God, which is not bad. That's a good thing. I'm so thankful we have in the scriptures we can look back and we can know these stories, right? But now Jesus has come to open their eyes and to present so that he, to the present so that he can lead them into the glorious future of God's kingdom coming to earth. And this is much more like the wedding anticipation of more to come. Now, the understanding for the Israelites is a time for laughing, specifically around a wedding feast. That's very specific language, that this is when the Messiah was here, the great messianic wedding banquet. That's what they would call it. Right? This, this would have been the time, and they're saying, wait, you're equating yourself with the Messiah here. Jesus says, the thing you've been waiting for, it's me, I'm here. But it's different than you thought, isn't it? So far, I haven't fit into your paradigm of who you thought God was. Jesus isn't walking around like the Pharisees. That's who they thought represented God, puffing out his chest, boasting about his achievements. He's loving the unloved. He's caring for the unwashed, the hurt, and the ones who can do nothing for God. He's loving all the wrong kinds of people, which is exactly the point. He's doing a new thing. The kingdom of heaven is new, and newness cannot fit inside the old paradigm. And this is what Jesus, he gives two fitting examples here. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Now, today we have a solution for this um, that we don't have to worry about, and that's just to wear whatever that is and all sorts of jeans. We don't need patches. We don't need no stinking patches. But as the ancient example goes, they actually didn't have a Joanne's fabric in Capernaum. Did you know that? They couldn't just get patches for their tunics. So if they needed them, they'd have to ruin another tunic to then patch and to replace the old one. Now Jesus says an unshrunk patch. In Luke, it'll say a new tunic, which would mean this is, a, this is cutting up, think about it, a new tunic, cutting it up to patch the old. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> the right answer is no, right? Jesus says, and it, so the unshrunk patch, he's saying that if you're given a new tunic, it is to replace the old because the new is better. Okay? If, if, if we get that, okay? Now, he goes to another example. Now, and this seems obvious, but again, it's hard to give up what we're used to. It's hard to give up what we know, Okay? Now, you and I probably both have at least some item of clothing that you just can't give away. Maybe it was like that shirt you slept in in college or something like that, or just your favorite t-shirt or something like that. I actually have something like this. So quick backstory. Um, so this is Christy and her old boyfriend um, <laughs> back in college. Uh, and uh, this was, we were sophomores in, in college, and we went to Washington Family Ranch. Has anyone been there? It used to be called Wild Horse. Yeah, it's awesome. So our, we take our whole school, which is super fun. So we went and uh, and they had a night where it was like, come as your uh, dressed up as your favorite character, and of course she goes as like just the beautiful Princess Belle from Beauty and the Beast, you know. And then I go as Elmo, <laughs> and so I think it's the truest sense of beauty and and the Beast. Um, <laughs> and I think I was so sunburned. I think I matched that red well. 
Um, but that that Elmo costume was just something that um, that actually I've never been able to uh, to give away. And so 15 years later, here we are. And uh, I would put it on, but it really does not fit anymore. Um, but maybe Jack could wear it. I don't know. Um, but it's uh, it smells, so don't come near it. Um, but there's just something I just I can't give it away. It's it. This has been with Christy as long as I have. Think about that, right? She thinks about that. She has nightmares of that. I think. I have memories with it. I have heat rashes from it. I have all sorts of stuff, right? It's beautiful and it's mine. Now the statement from Jesus, the statement from Jesus, you're right, is not about clothing, right? He's giving examples of this, right? And he's proving a point that as soon as you're giving something new and better, the old should go. It's not that the old was bad. It's just no longer what was required, okay? In case they were staring at him like, I thought this guy was a carpenter, not a tailor. Why are we talking about clothes? He gives them another example, verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Okay, uh, I want to say this right. Are there any sommeliers in here? How do you say, how do you say it? Man, words are hard today. It's a tough one. Um, what happens if you put uh, fresh wine into something? Does anyone know? It expands. Okay, it expands. Okay, so like the just every the fermentation process, it lets off gases. It ex, it expands. Okay, it's um, so an ancient wine skin is a bottle made out of animal skin. Okay, so they'd actually make it out of animals, and it would usually usually goats or sheep or something like that, and it would contain liquid, and oftentimes it would contain wine. And wine would expand when the gases were let off, and it would <laughs> the leather would expand and contract a bit, and of course you have the heat, you have all sorts of stuff, and as it's getting squeezed or drunk, all this kind of stuff. So because of all the various elements, over time, wineskins would get brittle and would become very fragile. So if you had an aged, fragile wineskin that was barely holding it together, even though you loved it and it contained good wine, would you pour brand new, fresh wine with its aroma and sweetness and gases and all that stuff in the old wineskin, it would expand and then explode, kablooey, okay? So the old wineskin cannot contain the new wine. We need new and fresh wineskins for the new and fresh wine, Jesus says. We need a new container for a new substance. In order to accept what is new, the old needs to be made new. Do you see where Jesus is going with this? Jesus isn't just here to patch things up or bring freshness to an already ongoing success story. In fact, according to Jesus, how things were being done in the name of God was actually not how it was intended to be. Jesus has been talking to a few different groups, but remember, his disciples had been with him the whole time. And as we're reading, we get included in that. And if you track with what Jesus has been saying, he's actually bringing them back to his mission that he said in the Matthew passage, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's the deal. If you think you are the righteous, then you will continue to wear the same tunic and learn to love it and cherish it and protect it, and you will do what you can to preserve it. You will continue to use the same wineskin and drink the same old wine. And the crazy thing is, aged wine tastes great. 
Like it's good wine. It's not bad. It's not bitter. Aged wine is good. You've gotten used to that taste. That's what you know wine to taste like. It's your preferred wine. It's your preferred wineskin. It's your preferred Elmo costume. It just feels right. And if you are like this, then Jesus's offer means nothing to you. You don't need it. The Pharisees didn't need it, obviously, because they had what they needed and can do what they deemed required by God to be good. In fact, Luke's uh, parallel narrative to this passage um, in Luke 5, he says this, Luke 5, 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. In this context, that's a, that's a pretty shocking statement. No one desires the new for the old is good. Aged wine's better than brand new wine, but Jesus isn't talking about taste. He's talking about being filled with new life, having a full life of newness from God and having the capacity to accept it. If you are anything like the paralytic, unable to do anything for yourself, allowing yourself to be completely dependent on others, desperate for change and closeness with God, what Jesus says, this is gospel. This is life. This is, oh, I, I, need, I, can't, I can't go back. This is it. If you're anything like Matthew, feeling dead inside, not who you want to be, a longing for something more, but not sure where to find it, what Jesus says is gospel. Let's just remind ourselves who Jesus talked about in his gospel, who inherits his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are, are blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Look at that list. That's different, right? These are the kinds of people who long to see God, not just to be a part of a religion or a cause. All of these will be blessed because they will not hold on to the old ways. Because they see, obviously, that the old is not better than the new. They will actually have the ears to hear and the eyes to see the newness that Jesus brings and accept it because they recognize the old is not better. The struggle is with those who don't recognize the old was needing to be made new. Now, I'm not going to labor on this point, and I'm included in this, but I truly believe from my own conviction that one of the main issues with just us, like in general, American Christians, okay, we can be deceived that we just, we have it too good. We're too comfortable. It's just a, a way that we, we strive to make our lives peaceful and comfortable. And that's okay, but it's hard then for us to be desperate for Jesus. It's hard for us to be desperate to say, Jesus, I don't have it. I am nothing. Please, I need you. We want to add Jesus to our life, but to be desperate for that. And this is where I appreciate the Apostle Paul and his blatant refusal to be caught up in religion, earning him a place with God. This is Philippians chapter 3. Paul puts his resume out here. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And again, these are very Jewish terms, but he's just, he's putting it out there. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He is just like, man, I have the resume of resumes. 
He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's got it all. But what do you say? Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Like I had to think of this. I think of like any accolades, degrees, hobby achievements, career achievements, financial situations, even your looks or your muscles or whatever it is, your shoe collection. Could you count it as rubbish in order that you may gain Christ? Doesn't mean it's bad, but just in comparison, is it rubbish? That's convicting. We're in a high achievement culture. It's tough to count our successes and achievements, nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. Now, this passage, it's, it's about priorities, right? It's where it's about reversing the order. It's not doing so that you can know Christ. It's knowing Christ so then he compels you to the doing. But Jesus brilliantly puts this all together here in chapter 9 of Matthew, that God is after the heart. This is not a competition to out-holy one another because you can't out-holy God, so what good is that? God can't be impressed with our holiness. He might be pleased if we have the right motives and desires us to live holy, set-apart lives, but that's not why we are his children. He didn't die for us because we were so holy. What does it say? While we were still sinners. He chose us before the foundation of this world because he loved us. And this is where I want to land the plane. The real goal is not to impress God, but to be with God. Let me explain. What's the charge here in this passage? Jesus' disciples don't fast, right? Why do your disciples not fast? But Jesus' disciples did fast. They just did it in secret. Remember Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 16. Jesus is teaching his followers. And when you fast, not if, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, that's their reward. That's all they're going to get. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Look great that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is reteaching what these practices were for. They were for closeness in relationship with a loving God who wants to be with you. This practice is not for show to others. It's for you and God. Jesus' disciples, they did pray. Jesus just told them to do it in secret. Go into your house and pray. They did serve the poor. They just weren't blaring trumpets once, once they did so, like the Pharisees did. So even other followers of God had issues with followers of Jesus because it didn't seem like enough. It seemed like Jesus and his followers were throwing everything out, ruining it for the rest of them, and they had to take that ridicule. Followers of Jesus had to be chastised by their own town's religious leaders and followers of John the Baptist, who was a very popular leader, and they had to take that in the name of Jesus. We know Andrew and Philip were disciples of John the Baptist before they came to Jesus. How do you think they felt in this moment? Here's their old crew coming up to their new rabbi and saying, hey, what are you doing? 
Why are you making such a fool of yourselves? Jesus, why are your disciples not doing the things you're supposed to do? You guys are embarrassing us. This is not the way to do these things around here. And this is the point. It's not. They were right. Jesus wasn't there to fit in. He wasn't there to fall in line and agree with everyone. He came to show the way, the truth, and the life. And what people didn't understand is that it wasn't that Jesus didn't fit into their paradigm. It's that their religious paradigms don't fit with God, according to Jesus. Jesus has been actively teaching his followers to identify less with the religious leaders, less with the show, less with the big stuff that gets on Instagram, and more identifying with the lepers, the paralyzed, the repentant tax collectors, the ones who no one notices because God notices them. And that's exactly how he wants his followers to be like him on earth. And it's different than what was thought. Jesus is teaching his disciples that he hasn't come to bring another school of thought on religious duty. Right? So many people today have deep issues with religion, even the institution of the church. And honestly, sometimes I do too. The whole thing can get way too corporate and lose the why of why what we do, what we do. Praise be to God. If you're skeptical, if you've ever had that, or you know someone that has, look at this. Jesus is showing his followers the why. The why do you do the things you do? Why do we do the things you do? Why do we sing to God? Pray with and for one another. Why do we give our money away? Why don't we just keep it together? Why do we receive things like communion and baptism? Guys, it's it's not religion, right? It's not to bring God's favor down upon us. That's for him to decide. It's because Jesus has showed us that this is the way of being with God. Regardless of us being blessed or not, we honor we in, or not, we worship and serve our God because He loved us and we love Him back. It's simple, it's complicated, but it's simple. I often think about the street preacher, kind of the sign holder, screamer, right, that's yelling at everyone to, to repent, compared to the, 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 the mother of three who serves in the local food kitchen for the homeless because, with, with a smile because she loves Jesus and loves people. I think about the, you know, the celebrity pastor who has these big, big things and gets interviewed, courtside seats, whatever, compared to the pastor who quietly pastors a church in the middle of nowhere for 40 years, never gets on the YouTubes, never records a sermon, never got famous. No one will ever know about this person, but loved their church well and faithfully worked quietly and behind the scenes. I'm not going to say what glorifies God more than another, right? And I think everyone has to be committed and content with what they've been given by God on this earth for his glory. But I think it's safe to say the humble way of Jesus is not the glamorous life preached by the world or the big show religion shown here by the Pharisees. Can we agree on that? And unfortunately for the ancient covenant people of God, the world has influenced what the old was always meant to be. The law and the prophets were always meant towards preparation for Jesus. The old, the law and the prophets, they're the foundation, the setting, the stage for Jesus and this new wine that he brings, this new outpouring that he brings. Jesus is fulfilling the old way of the law by bringing its conclusion. The new and better way by grace is here. Going back to the visual of new wine and new wineskins, Jesus has brought new wine, which is obviously not actual wine. 
but a new way of living life. But we can't be the same old humans to receive this new life. We need to also be made new into new creation to receive this new life. We need to first identify with the sinners, not the righteous, then accept Jesus as the newness of life and then walk in that newness. This is what the regeneration of the Holy Spirit within us is all about. God is asking to be in relationship with us here and now, not just for us to wait until some future reality in the heavens to be with him. And would you not agree? Do we want to go back to the constant sacrifices and following 613 laws? Do we want that? (laughs) I don't want it, right? I want Jesus. I want the Spirit in and with me constantly. I want to be with God. The old was all about how to make new wineskins out of people, how to shape and form a people to then be ready to be filled with the new and fresh outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. The question for everyone and before us today is, have we allowed ourselves to be formed into the new in order to accept and grow with the pouring out of the Spirit of God and the way of life Jesus reveals? We can easily say the old has gone, the new has come, but does it really look like that in your life? Has the old really gone? Have you accepted the new? Some of us have experienced more of what it looks like to be fragile and brittle wineskins. We're dried up. We're tired. Nothing seems to give us life, expand our knowledge or our life or our heart anymore. Or maybe like that passage, we're just happy with the old stuff. We're fine with the old stuff. What needs to change? We're unmotivated to change or to grow or to be humble or to say, I'm sorry, to ask for forgiveness. The challenge is the teachings of Jesus here. He's come to bring a newness of life to his followers, to bring a newness and life to all who are brittle and weary and stretched thin. God chose to come live in us because we couldn't ever go to him. And we can now enjoy and live into some of those beautiful practices and expressions of our heartfelt worship and devotion, not to try to gain his favor, but because we are with Christ through the Holy Spirit. And this is the mindset now. We don't fast now so that God will notice us. We don't fast because we want to, well, we fast because we want to hear God's voice. We want to know God. I want to be undistracted when I'm praying or going about my day and listening for his guidance so that I can be fully used by my God. I choose to fast not because it looks religious, but because I'm genuinely thankful for what God has given me and honoring that it is him who sustains me. That's the mindset, right? And it looks different for everybody, but that's it. With these examples today, Jesus hasn't been talking about a secret substance that if you achieve a certain level, you get. And only his closest, most prestigious followers get. He's talking about himself. It's not just his teachings. Everything is from him. He is the new wine. He is the new garment to put on, the one who can forgive sins, the only one. And he's with anyone who desperately wants him. Jesus mentioned that he was the bridegroom. Is it any wonder, we're going to partake in this in a second, but is it any wonder that later in our gospel story, when Jesus shares his last meal with his followers, the Passover meal before his death, that Jesus does what is normally done at a Jewish wedding by taking the spot of the bridegroom, handing his goblet to his betrothed, 
as the proposal of saying, all that I am, I want to give to you, right? And then what would happen is the betrothed would then drink of that cup and then do the same thing back to them. He hands it, though, in this case, to his disciples. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. And he passes it then to his disciples, right? This is more of this, again, back to that wedding analogy, the celebration feast. Jesus is the one who has provided the wine. Jesus is the one who passed it down to his followers. They didn't come up with their own wine. It had to come from him. And the one who, Jesus is the one who has given the chance for us to become and to continue being new wineskins for his fresh outpouring of his spirit. So as we go to respond, this is our prayer. Lord, fill me up. Make me new. Pour me out. Renew me over and over again. Give me the capacity for more. Expand, stretch me, grow me, and I'll continue to pour out as you use me in worship of you. And we will continue to be aware of what God is doing and be used in his mission for us. Can we commit to that hub city? That's what we want. God, yes, like you are the one. I want to identify with someone who's not righteous outside of you. I, would, I need you. Fill me up, pour me out. Fill me up, pour me out. Expand me. What a beautiful picture of new wine, new wineskin.